Well, good morning. My name's uh, Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. It's good to see you. We are going to dismiss children for Children's Church. It's good to see uh, new faces and uh, old friends that are away for the summer back with us. Uh, uh, many of you may have noticed we're in the midst of a number of changes in a bunch of different fronts. Um, one of them does relate to children. We are continuing to expand and improve our children's program. We have uh, Children's Church helping children to acclimate to what we're doing here. Um, we also have uh, developed for the first week a cry room. Um, if you find that the uh, transition either to nursery or children's church or this service is, is too much uh, for your child and they, they need to step out, we have a, a room just to the side with a speaker. Uh, parents can go there with their children. Please don't leave them there. Um, but it is an option if you want to continue to participate and listen uh, during this part of the service. Um, we're continuing to make a, a bunch of adjustments as a church. If you were away for the summer, you may have missed uh, the announcement perhaps during uh, uh, late summer that instead of returning to split the two services in the fall during the college semester, we are just expanding our seating and we're meeting together. Um, so we have a more expanded balcony. Uh, it's great to see some of you up there. Um, and uh, we're expanding our seating here as well. Um, I recognize some of you here are new to Pittsburgh. It's very typical this time of year. And I would suggest that perhaps uh, at some point you had a tour. If you haven't, I hope you do. Um, and if that uh, opportunity doesn't arise, let me know. I would love to give you a short tour of the city. Um, many of you who have been in Pittsburgh a little longer, you do this from time to time, don't you? Um, you show your friends from out of town the things you love about the city. For me, that almost inevitably uh, leads to a trip up Mount Washington. As you get on that ridge overlooking the city, you can sort of point out to your friends and visitors, look, look at how the city fits together. And you see, look, the two rivers that form one and the point and the buildings in downtown in Oakland, and you just get a sense of what's going on. Well, I, as you know, I love tours, and over the next three weeks in church, we're going to be doing something of a tour of city reform. Uh, recognizing some of you are new, or if you're not new, it's helpful to be reminded of these things. For this week and the next two weeks in our sermon time, we're going to be thinking about themes that are really essential to our church. If this is your first time at City Reformed and you might be asking what kind of a church is this, um, we're hopefully going to be answering that question. Or, or maybe you've been here for a while and you've just been in a routine. I think it's a helpful, refreshing reminder for all of us. And, and, and maybe it simply helps you explain that, some things about our church to someone else. So as we uh, look over the, the contours of City Reformed, there are three things I want to point out. Uh, first of all, I want to think about our worship service and our commitment to the scriptures as God, God's word, how that forms our worship service. We're going to do that today. Next week, we'll talk about what it means for us to live life together and how we do that in our church. And third and finally, uh, in two weeks from now, we'll talk about our commitment to this place to being in this university and medical center, to being a city church. So those are sort of the contours we want you to see. We'll be choosing uh, sermon texts that help move that conversation along. Uh, this week we'll be re reading one of my favorite passages from Luke chapter 24. It's an account of one of the first resurrection appearances of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. So immediately we know it's a big deal. And in it we get clues about how we come to see and know Jesus 
particularly through his word, uh, through the word of God. So I'm going to read this. We'll affirm together that this is the word of the Lord on page 8, and then we'll talk about it. So Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. That very day, that is Easter Sunday, the first day of the resurrection, two of them, that is two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And acting as if they were going further... He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things I've learned in life in general is that sometimes it's important to ask the obvious question. We might miss the obvious question assuming everyone knows and sometimes we don't think clearly enough about it ourselves. We see that in the passage. Jesus is talking uh, with these uh, disciples. They didn't recognize him yet. And uh, when they talk about the things that had happened, Jesus says, what things? And, And they look at him and says, are you the only one who doesn't know? Where have you been? Now, this, in some ways, you can't read this without feeling like there's a little bit of humorous, humorous irony going on because everything they're describing is about Jesus and he's the one talking to them. And yet still he asks what they think is the obvious question. 
I'm glad that he did because as they answer, we learn some of the obvious things that are a helpful reminder for us. That they had known this Jesus of Nazareth, that he had lived among them, a prophet mighty of word and deed, but he had died tragically in the eyes of his disciples. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, and yet now something else was happening something they didn't understand. The the women had gone to the tomb. The tomb was empty. The angels were speaking, and general confusion had set in what was going on. So Jesus asks the obvious question. In our exercise of giving a a tour to City Reform, I'm going to ask two of the most obvious questions. Uh, Maybe you're asking, or maybe the person next to you is asking, and the question is this, what are we doing here? Do you agree with me? That's a fairly obvious question in a way. Like, why are we here? Maybe you're here because someone invited you. Maybe they told you something about a picnic and then you mumbled under your breath, we'll go to church first, and here you are. Maybe your parents made you come, or maybe you've come just because this is what you've always done. Or your parents were just pestering you. Having arrived in a new city, they kept calling you, make sure you go to church. I'm glad they did, if that brought you here. But I think it's worth asking as we do our our tour of city reform, what are we doing when we gather together and why do we do it that way? Because for some of you, this could be a different sort of church experience. And for some of you, church church at all is completely new. Uh, One of the interesting things about being located where we are is we have all kinds of folks that walk in and out the doors. Some people that have come from other countries or even having grown up up in our country have never been to church before. It'll happen many times each year. Someone will come up afterwards and say, this is the first church service I've ever been in. Maybe that person is sitting next to you. If they are, they're certainly asking the question, what are you doing here? Or, Or maybe you grew up in a church that's a little different. The sermons aren't so long, or they don't do these reading back and forth things that are in the bulletin. The the songs are different, and then we did this thing, prayer of confession, and you say, what on earth is that? If you don't have these questions, someone next to you probably does, and certainly your friends, your co-workers, your classmates, your family, when they come with you, will be having those questions I think if we were to pick a single Bible passage to explain some of our core commitments that drive city reformed as we gather in a worship service, I think that Luke 24 is a very good place to start. I want to look at three things in this passage that do more, do take us a long way in answering the questions, why are we here, why do we do it that way? The three things we're going to look at are this, first is the resurrection of Jesus, Secondly, the way in which God tells a story in the scriptures that help us understand reality. We'll talk about worldview, resurrection worldview. And third and finally, we'll talk about the way in which we meet with God as we gather together. And we use a a term, the means of grace. Ultimately, we are here today because we believe we can meet with the living God who made us We believe he has a story that he's inviting us in and that he has done things in history that change everything. So those three items, resurrection, uh, worldview, means of grace. Let me explain how we see that. First of all, the maybe obvious thing in the text we could easily miss is that in the Gospel of Luke, in this uh, story that that Luke is telling, a history of Jesus, this is one of the first, this is actually the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. 
We've been following the story of Jesus beginning with his birth, his baptism, his public ministry. A lot of attention was given to the last week of his life. And that's what the disciples talked about. These things they were talking about were mostly the last week of his life. Jesus came to the religious center of his people and he was rejected, turned over to the Romans, the occupying army of the land, and crucified. He died a horrible death. And for the disciples at the time, most of them thought, this is the end. It went terribly wrong. And yet Jesus is reminding them, no, this is actually just the beginning. Something happened in history. A man who was dead, who had been close friends with a large group of people, who was a public figure, visibly seen, he died visibly, horribly. An act of public injustice, a public execution, And then three days later, he began to appear to people. They saw him again. Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the central claim of Christianity. It's really the beginning of Christianity. Jesus appeared raised from the dead. And and when we say raised from the dead, we have to give a word of explanation. We have hints of this in the passage. Jesus was raised with a similar body but a new body. Throughout history, people have perhaps had their hearts stopped. They've been maybe clinically or technically dead, and they've been brought back. You could do this with perhaps with CPR, and today with these machines, you could zap someone, or sometimes for reasons we don't fully understand, a person could go down and come back. But the story of resurrection in the Bible is not a story of a man who went down and came back. It's a story of a man who went through. What Jesus is showing them here is that he has a new body, his final body. It's like the one that came before it. He is recognizable, but it's also different. The gospel accounts gives us all these tantalizing hints of what it might be like. He has the habit of appearing and disappearing and moving around, and yet he's very real and physical. Later, the apostles are able to put their fingers in his wounds. It's his body. We see hints of that in the passage. Jesus is not recognizable. The best I can do with that and understanding is it's something like the experience you might have when you haven't seen someone for a long time. There are people who move in and out of Pittsburgh and sometimes they've been away for a while and they come back and they see our kids a bunch of years later and say, wait, is this Isaac or Theo? And then when we tell them, like, oh, I, I see it now. Maybe that's what's happening here. We're not told. Jesus has a similar body, but it's new. It's different. He's been raised from the dead. That changes everything. It tells us that death has been defeated, that his life really was given as a sacrifice for sin so that we can be forgiven so that we can be right with God. The barrier of human rebellion is broken because death of a righteous man occurred on our behalf. Because Jesus was raised, everything changed. Everything changed for these disciples. They had been faithful Jewish people, men and women, gathering on the seventh day of the week, on a Saturday for worship, reading the scriptures that had been given to them, and then Jesus was raised from the dead. And everything changed. They began to meet on the first day of the week, on Sunday instead of Saturday. And they began to gather together with the hope and the expectation that his resurrection also would be a foretaste of what would happen to them 
what would happen to us. Who are we and what are we doing here now? We are first and foremost a people of the resurrection. City Reformed, like all Christian churches, is built on the hope that Jesus was raised from the dead, that death is defeated, that sin doesn't have the final word, that we can be near God, and that one day all who are in Christ will share in that resurrection. Resurrection is central to who we are. But there are other things going on in the passage as well. The second thing we see is that this is a passage of revealing the identity of Jesus. It's sort of an interesting way of going about doing it. Uh, Jesus doesn't just show up before them and say, here I am. There's, there's sort of a relational dynamic. He enters into their conversation. He asks questions. And most importantly, Jesus chooses to reveal himself against the backdrop of the Holy Scriptures. It's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Jesus was there in the flesh before them, and yet he chose to reveal himself in a certain way. We, we see that as we look at the passage. The text says, again, their eyes were uh, kept from seeing him, verse 16. We don't know all of the reasons why that was. But instead, they have to see Jesus and experience him as they come to the word. That's what Jesus does as, they are, uh, as he is talking with them. He asks them to rehearse the story of what has happened, and they intuitively put together the events into a story, but their story is incomplete. It ends with tragedy and confusion. Jesus had died. Now we're confused. And Jesus says to them, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now when Jesus refers here to the prophets, it's clear what he's talking about is what we call the Old Testament. At this point, the New Testament, part of the Bible, hadn't yet been written. This Old Testament written in Hebrew was what they received as the scriptures. Jesus affirmed it as God's word. And here he uses it to describe who he is. And Jesus says to them, if you really understood the story, you would have understood my place in it. And that's why he calls them foolish and slow of heart. They had missed what was going on. These were disciples who had been with them. Jesus had told them explicitly, I must die and I will rise. So Jesus says, if you want to understand who I am, you have to understand me against the backdrop of what God has been doing in the world. And so what does he do? He gives them one of the greatest Bible lessons of all time. I wish I could have been there for this Bible lesson. But what we're told is that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and again, that's a Jewish way of saying the Bible, beginning with uh, Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scripture, going from all the books they had, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And the lesson we draw from this is that here, even on this first Easter Sunday, Jesus chose to reveal himself against the backdrop of the scriptures. He said, if you want to understand me, you must understand the story. God has been doing something. Now, theologians sometimes summarize this by speaking of what they call redemptive history. That is, in history, God was working to redeem something, to buy it back. The thing he's redeeming are people like you and me. The story that Jesus would have told them as he went through all the scriptures certainly would have looked something like this. 
It would have began in the beginning with a good and loving God who created humans in his image for relationship. And yet, humans rebelled. We were thrown into rebellion, separated from God. Our desire for our autonomy has separated us from the God who rules the heavens and the earth. And yet the story did not end there. The story throughout is a story of this great and loving God pursuing his people, redeeming them, buying them back. And throughout the Old Testament, all of the scriptures, Jesus would have told them a story of a God who wins his people back even at great sacrifice and cost. He would have pointed to the, the center of the Jewish uh, religious practice, the temple. He would have shown them the sacrifices that were given so that rebellious people consumed with their own controlling life could be bought back and forgiven. Jesus would have taken all of these things and he would have said, don't you see what it points to? Don't you see that it was necessary that there would be a Christ, a Messiah, a a true king, prophet, and priest who would suffer before he entered into glory. Didn't you know it was necessary, Jesus said. If we're going to understand Jesus, we have to listen carefully to his word. If we want to meet God, if we want to understand what he's done and this man raised from the dead, we have to know the story. So as we gather here in church, we are not only a people of the resurrection, we're a people of the book. We're people who want to have God's story become our story, the controlling story we use when we look at the world. And so what you will notice if you move through our worship service, looking at the things we do when we meet together, is it's absolutely saturated with the Bible. When we say we are a Bible-centered church, We affirm that the Bible is God's word, that he speaks it truly, and that when we read it, we can know what God wants us to know. When we talk about the Bible being essential for knowing God, we're not suggesting that there are no other books that that we can learn from that can help us. There are many other things we should study. Many of you are going to school in different areas, learning all about your fields, But if we want to know what God is doing, if we want to have the story that shapes the world we live in and the way we should live live in it, we only get that by reading the book he's given to us. And so we seek to be a people who saturate ourselves in God's story, in the story of a God, who, good God who created, of humans that rebelled, but of a persistent, redeeming power that culminates in Jesus. We are a resurrection people, and we are a people of the book. But third and finally, we are a people that see Jesus as the means of having life. We get grace from him. Whenever we come to the Bible, it's certainly true that we could read it as something of a rule book, telling us what to do or not to do. There are parts of it that have strong commands. Thou shalt not, the Bible says, that's true, and it's important for us. If we're going to know the God who created us, we have to respond to him and listen to what he has said. It's also true that the Bible is a story of things God has done. I said it's a redemptive history. But as we meet and gather here, we have an even, an even greater hope. And that is that even now, as we gather, God is revealing himself and connecting us to Jesus through the word and through the other means of grace that he gives us. 
It's our third and final point. When I say means of grace, some of you have grown up in a Presbyterian tradition. You know these words. You had to memorize them as a kid, maybe. But for some of you, they they could be very new. Let me refresh you on what I'm talking about or, or help explain what I'm saying. We come from a theological tradition called the Reformed tradition. It's a school of thinking and Protestant uh, theology. And it's very concerned with the big questions, the questions we're asking. How does someone get right with God? How do we get salvation? How are we forgiven? But at a key point in describing this theology, a question is asked, how do, how do all of the benefits of Jesus get attached to me? If you look with me on page 9, you'll see the question in our shorter catechism. And it says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Now that, that question could sound like, you know, it's the, the teacher on the Charlie Brown cartoon going, wah, 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 wah. Like, I don't know any of those words. Well, the question is a really important one, though, when you understand the words. Jesus was raised with eternal life. He didn't just come back, he went forward. And the Bible promises that that life is given to all who connect to him by faith. We will share in his resurrection one day. But that power is poured out now. The Holy Spirit is bringing resurrection life into the lives of people who know and trust Jesus. That's a big deal. We we seek to be a people who live in the power of the resurrection How do we get it? That's what question 88 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. How how does all of the benefit of Jesus living and dying and rising again, how does the grace and eternal life in Jesus, how does that get into my life? You know, friends, it's possible for us to be people that know a lot of stuff about Christianity and don't have power in our lives. And I think that's a concern we should take very seriously. I've been talking to some of you that are new, and this is all maybe new to you, but let me just speak to the rest of many of us here that are very familiar with it. And maybe you grew up with the principles of Christianity being driven into your head, whether you liked it or not. The warning is it's possible to know a lot about Christianity and not know God. We could have a good worldview, but no living power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a concern we ought to have. It's a a concern I hope as a church we continually challenge ourselves with. How how do we become people that have true living power of the Holy Spirit from the power of Jesus and his resurrection? How does that get attached to me? Well, the answer to this very important question at first can seem a little bit obvious. The answer is this. Well, the, the three things we really want to think about in the answer Word, sacrament, and prayer. We'll talk about prayer next week. We'll put it on the shelf for a moment. But the answer says this. We get grace through the word and the sacraments. Now again, this is a really important answer if you're new to city reform because it really shapes what we do. If you walked into the service and said, this is different than the church I grew up in. There are many wonderful churches, and we're not saying that we have the perfect way of doing everything. But we're driven by a set of concerns. That is, we want to be resurrection people. We want to be people of the book. And we want to be people that get grace from God when we come together. One of the things that we hope characterizes our church is that we can be pretty upfront and honest about our needs and our weakness. 
We fail. We fail to do this, I know, but we don't want to be a congregation of people that walk around pretending like we're all self-sufficient. We don't have any problems. We just heard a wonderful testimony today from a young woman who has perpetual need. And, And I think that's such a gift to us because in many ways, even if we don't have chronic illness, we are reminded we have perpetual need. How do we get grace? Well, sometimes the obvious thing is the thing we miss. The words, the sacraments, and prayer. Friends, I I can go through dry, dark periods in my life, and one of the dangers that happens is I begin to separate from the channels of grace God uses to shape and change me. I've been struggling some recently, some reasons personal, some seasonal, some related to living in a country that seems to be tearing itself apart, and it discourages me deeply. And I've found in the midst of it that sometimes I can begin to move away from the very things that God uses to give me life. This past uh, week, week before last, uh, my wife, Chrissy, and myself had the opportunity and privilege to travel overseas. We spoke to a group of missionaries in, um, in Bulgaria, also from Greece. We were trying to encourage and teach and support their work. And People have asked how it went. It was really good for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons it was really good for me is I spent the whole week thinking about the Bible and talking to people and in Statinous steam sauna for a little bit. Uh, it wasn't all work. Uh, uh, but what I began to find is I had to teach from the book of Hebrews. I had to teach four times and do one panel discussion. And the more I spent in the Word of God, the more God's Word began to grow in me. And, and I say this as a pastor, I'm like a professional read the Bible kind of a guy. That's my job. It's easy for pastors to get familiar with things. It's easy for you, lifelong Christian who's here because your parents begged you to go to church. It's easy for you to get familiar about things. But when we come together and worship, we come with the expectation that God is going to show himself to us and that when we see Jesus in faith, we have grace to live differently. And while that isn't exactly spelled out in this passage, Luke 24, it's the only way of understanding what's going on. I gave you that background so that now you look at Luke 24 and you say, oh, the means of grace. My hope is that you would join me in being a people that come to worship with an eager anticipation, with a hunger and a thirst to know God and to actually encounter him and meet him here. Look at how it happens in the passage. Jesus is giving them the Bible study of all Bible studies. And uh, later, when these disciples meet the rest of them, they give a summary of what happens. In verse 32, it says, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And again, isn't this just so interesting in the passage that the Lord Jesus, present before them, chose to reveal himself in his word? Well, friends, as we come together here on a Sunday morning, the Lord Jesus will not be physically present. 
what our Christian creeds and statements have taught for 2,000 years is that Jesus ascended into heaven, but he poured out the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit now speaks through the Word and meets us in the sacraments. That we won't see Jesus physically, but just as these disciples experienced him in the Word through this Bible study, that, but not just an informational Bible study, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures. My friends, I, I stand before you today as a man who desperately needs the grace of God coming through the Spirit. And I'll tell you a secret. It's our first Sunday back. Good secret time, right? A secret is that sometimes when I'm reading the text, actually all the time when I'm reading the text, God is doing more in me perhaps than he's doing in you. And sometimes when I'm standing in front of you talking about it, something happens. This is beyond my control. And actually God does something in my heart. The sermon isn't actually about any wise thing I have to say. I haven't got that much. And if it was, I would have been done years ago. But what, what's, what we want to see happening here, really in this time, is we come to God's word we want to see Jesus through the word. My, my role is like John the Baptist. I'm just going to try to decrease and let him increase. I'm going to try to get out of the way. And we, we want to see Jesus. Here's, here's the other part of the secret. We actually do it together more than you imagine. You might notice, if you're new, this might have struck you, but after I say that prayer that leads to the Bible time, I pause. And the point is you're praying also. And the other point is this, every preacher knows when you stand out, you're live without a net, and God is here, and he's working above and beyond anything I've prepared. And what I really want is that you would come with me to this time together with an eager desire to meet from God, to say, oh, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us as the scriptures were opened? Because this is, these are the words of eternal life. Jesus works through them. They're not just information, but he's actually present. The spirit is present in the word. One final thing we'll tack on in the end, and we'll, we'll draw this to a close. And that final thing is that we say in that, uh, creedal, that creedal response, we're going to read not just the word and prayer, which we'll talk about next week, but also the sacraments. The sacraments is the word we use as Presbyterians for communion and baptism. And what it means is they are things Jesus gave to the church. They have physical signs attached to them. But we believe when we come on the first Sunday of every month to eat the Lord's Supper, we come to the breaking of bread, that Jesus is spiritually present and that we can encounter him by faith. It's a high view of what's going on in communion. We're not talking about the bread changing or the wine changing to something else, but we're saying Jesus is spiritually present. We eat with him, and he gives us grace. We come as hungry people. And so we shape our worship service around these things. We shape them around the expectation that God can be present. Of all the good things he is doing here, he is present. And just as twice in this passage... The disciples say, we knew him in the breaking of bread. 
Our desire as we gather and worship is that our hearts would burn as the scriptures are opened and on those Sundays where we break the bread and eat the meal together, our prayer is that we would know Jesus better and that he would bring us grace. And we do it together with an eager expectation as we gather that God is present, he's working, and he has grace to help us in our need. And so, friends, I invite you into another year of seeking God together, seeking him in prayer, praying for our worship, but coming with the expectation that we can encounter God through the word and find grace in the word and in the sacrament. Let's pray together in Jesus' name.